Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. Today is the 8th of July, 2020. So, podcast today, we're going to continue on our discussion of certain biochemical systems that are associated with disease states. So I like to title these kinds of talks pathobiochemistry rather than disease or biomedical problems because it's much more biochemically oriented as what I would do in a biochemistry class directed towards either biomedicine or maybe pharmacy or maybe a specific lecture or two just in general graduate biochemistry. So we're going to continue this discussion of proteases and protease inhibitors because now it's starting to get into something very topical, uh, which I hope you will see um, forthwith. So I'm going to start with my new introductory statement that I've decided I'm going to put at the beginning of all of my lectures, including the video. And that is, I'm going to give you this talk today because I have nothing better to do. Now, I believe I have to have an argument to be able to utilize that particular statement at the beginning of my lecture. So here it goes. If I say I have nothing better to do as I introduce this lecture, I suppose I have to defend the statement with a sound argument because I do like to be illogical. So, okay, here's the argument. My first premise is I have free individual agency to will my choices into action. Second premise, I believe this free choice of my will is inclined to do good and this explains my will towards perpetual improvement of myself by choosing actions that promote my becoming better. Therefore, I conclude, I will make such a choice of individual action since I freely choose this now and I freely decide I have nothing better to do. So if you like that argument, if you find, if you find um, opposition to it or opposition to my premises, or you want to tell me that it's not sound, then please go ahead and write to me at my email address, djgphd at gmail.com, or send me a note into the podcast, and I'll be glad to respond to it on air. So let's go ahead and recap a little bit about proteases. I told you about the mechanism of trypsin in some detail, the, the uh, catalytic triad, and how we get an oxyanion cleft or hole, and this generates the correct positioning geometrically, biophysically, and then ultimately biochemically to cause peptide bond scission of the substrate protein. So chymotrypsin is, is in the same family as trypsin, and it works in two stages. There's an initial burst phase. Of course, that's going to be at the beginning of the reaction, and then a steady state phase that follows basic Michaelis-Menten saturation kinetics. So the first action is an acylation of the substrate to form an acyl enzyme intermediate. And then there's a deacylation to return the enzyme to its original state. So is that it? No, let me give you detail. This of course is authentic biochemistry. So this occurs via the concerted action actually of a three amino acid residue in the catalytic, catalytic triad. And we talked about these. This is serine, histidine, and aspartic acid, right? Those are the three in the catalytic triad of these serine proteases. 
So let's get, let's get down to what is actually occurring. The aspartate hydrogen bonds to the nitrogen delta hydrogen of histidine, increasing the pKa of its epsilon nitrogen, thus making it able to deprotonate serine. The depro this deprotonation al uh, allows the serine side chain to act, of course, as a nucleophile. And it binds to the now electron-deficient carbonyl carbon of the protein main chain. Ionization of that carbonyl oxygen is stabilized by the formation of two hydrogen bonds to adjacent main chain nitrogen hydrogens. This occurs in what we called the oxyanion hole that was generated by the electron pull from the Keller triad. Now this forms this all-important tetrahedral adduct, and you get ultimately the scission of the peptide bond, the substrate. An acyl enzyme intermediate is formed, it's bound to the serine, and when that's formed, there's a newly formed amino terminus of the cleaved protein, which of course then just simply dissociates. In the second reaction step, the all-important one really, in my opinion, a water molecule is activated by the basic histidine residue, and then it acts as a nucleophile, okay? The oxygen of water attacks the carbonyl carbon of a serine-bound acyl group, and that results in the formation of a second tetrahedral adduct, regeneration of the serine hydroxyl group, release of a proton, as well as of the protein fragment with the newly formed carboxy terminus. So that's basically chemotrypsin uh, activity. So again, the mechanism of uh, an action of serine proteases involves a catalytic triad, remember it's aspartic acid, histidine, and serine, and it converts the active side serine to a powerful nucleophile, an oxyanion pocket, which facilitates the formation of that tetrahedral transition state, and then finally, you get an acylation of the active site serine to give a covalent intermediate and subsequent spontaneous release of the product. <clears throat> now, some serine protease-mediated responses are what follows. This is the biological component. Zymogen activation is control. Premature activation can cause, for example, the disease that we've talked about in the past, acute pancreatitis. Leukocyte elastase, which is going to be the topic of today, and its role in pulmonary emphysema, all important. And then pro-hormone convertases, which we'll talk about a lot later. And that's in relation to all the other proteases. We can talk about their biological function and possible associations with disease. So zymogen activation, we start off with trypsinogen, for example. And then there's an enteropeptidase that generates trypsin, okay? And so trypsin actually can conduct its own conversion from trypsinogen to trypsin. That's right. Now, what else does trypsin do? Trypsin converts chymotrypsinogen to chymotrypsin, the mechanism of which we just went over. Trypsin also could convert prolipase into lipase. These are all going to be proteins that are going to be released either from the liver or the pancreas. And many of these are digestive, and so they're going to be carrying out exocrine functions of those organs. Now, trypsin can also convert 
proelastase to elastase, topic of today, really important in neutrophils. And it can also convert procarboxypeptidase to carboxypeptidase. So you see how all of these enzymes, starting off as a zymogen, which means a, an inactive precursor form, can all be converted once you convert trypsinogen to trypsin, because trypsin is going to carry out all those other catalytic events. So chymotrypsinogen starts off at about, as a 245 amino acid zymogen. Trypsin converts it to what's known as pi-chymotrypsin, which is actually active. You get two fragments. You get a 15 amino acid peptide, and then you get the rest of the peptide, which is 16 to 245. Chymotrypsin now functions to generate alpha chymotrypsin, which is the fully active form. Here you get an A chain, a B chain, and a C chain by removing a couple of peptides. I'm going to find out which ones they are real soon. The A chain consists of one uh, amino acid 1 to amino acid 13, starting from the amino terminus. And then B chain starts from amino acid 16. That means you've cleaved amino acids 14 and 15 out. So that's one of the dipeptides that was removed by chymotrypsin. The B chain starts as amino acid 16 from the original to 146. But that B chain is going to form another polypeptide with C chain, which starts off at 149 and ends at the 245 carboxy terminus. So that means you got rid of that other dipeptide, right? So you got two dipeptides that have been removed. And that second one was 147, 148, if you're keeping track of the numbers. And that's how you get the fully active chymo, alpha chymotrypsin. Okay. So let's go over this again real quickly. What is the mechanism of activation of chymotrypsinogen? So now we're talking about zymogen conversion to a fully active protease, okay? You get a cleavage now of arginine 15 to isoleucine 16. Now this is on the substrate, right? This is the chymotrypsinogen. That's going to lead to a conformational change in the protein. And it's going to give you new carboxy and new amino groups to be able to interact with one another. The new amino group turns in and interacts with the spartate 194 within the interior of the molecule, the molecule being the protein. This amino acid group has to be protonated for the enzyme to be active, so it's pH dependent. The interaction between these positive and negative charges in the nonpolar region then triggers a conformational change, a subsequent one. Indeed, methionine-192 moves from the buried state in the zymogen to the surface in the active enzyme. Residues 187 and 193 become then in the more, uh, available to the more extended polypeptide. These conformational changes give rise to substrate binding site, and the cavity will not exist, of course, in the zymogen. So you get a translational complex that's stabilized by the transition that was just generated from the zymogen activation. <clears throat> and that's stabilized by hydrogen bonds. It can only form in the active enzyme. And that is the main chain NH group of glycine-193. So the oxyanion pocket becomes functional. That's how that is generated. There are other conformational changes, changes which are minor, which I don't need to go over here this morning. So 
a little bit more about biological uh, considerations in biomedicine. There's acute pancreatitis. That involves the premature activation of a zymogen. It can be triggered by trauma to the pancreas. It's normally prevented because producing enzymes such as zymogens, storing zymogens in protease-resistant vesicles, and the presence of, look out, pancreatic trypsin inhibitor. So pancreatic trypsin inhibitor, remember, it's a low molecular mass, binds to the active site like substrate. Okay. So there is a trypsin, pancreatic trypsin inhibitor complex that's formed. Now, that prevents pancreatitis, right? Because excessive amount of zymogen production and then that inhibitor being in place. So think about that when we get into this disease we're going to start getting into. So now let's talk about leukocyte elastase and the alpha-1 antitrypsin protease inhibitor, something we've already encountered here in authentic biochemistry. So the leukocyte elastase is involved in, of course, because it's a leukocyte, the inflammatory response. It's controlled by the alpha-1 protease inhibitor, which is the alpha-1 antitrypsin, actually. It's a serine protein secreted by the liver, and it's a member of the serpent families. So, of course, sensu strictus, because it's a serine protease inhibitor. <clears throat> Variants of the inhibitor, of course, exist. We've talked about these with reduced activity, and they're associated with, for example, another disease, pulmonary emphysema, which, of course, is a degenerative lung disease, and that has to do to damage caused by elastin. That, okay, so that elastase system can generate its own disease state, which is pulmonary emphysema. Smokers also have a decreased activity of the inhibitor and increased lung damage because of it. And that's because of the oxidation of the active site methionine to a methionine sulfoxide. That's especially a problem in heterozygotes for the defective inhibitor gene. So the alpha-1 protease inhibitor and other serpents may also be involved in other degenerative diseases. And we've talked about these also other oncogenic diseases. So there's much effort to develop specific inhibitors and regulation of the inhibitors of these enzymes. All right. Here's a paper published in Frontiers of Pharmacology, one of my favorite journals, published back in September of 2018. Okay. So... Neutrophils are the most abundant leukocyte type in human circulation. They're generating the bone marrow at a rate of about 10 to the 11th per day. Whereas during bacterial infection, you can get as much as an increase to 10 to the 12th per day. And the source of these neutrophils, besides bone marrow, may actually be hematopoietic progenitors already present in circulation, only to differentiate into mature and functional neutrophils upon stimulation. And this, is, this has all been discerned from mouse models, but it's very similar to humans. So human neutrophils are traditionally viewed as short-lived cells. They represent the first line of defense in response to invading pathogens. And it's been revealed that these neutrophils are involved not only in the killing of extracellular invading pathogens, but also contributes to the immune response itself 
through crosstalk with other immune cells. Of course, what cells? Lymphocytes and even dendritic cells and natural killer cells. So neutrophils express and secrete signaling molecules in order to facilitate this response and mechanism. Plus, they express a large number of cell surface molecules to interact with other cell surface receptors for cell-cell interactions. Neutrophil activation, mobilization, and accumulation are derived from these PRRs and from host acute phase proteins like the alpha-1 antitrypsin we've been talking about both of which increase during inflammation, okay? So I'm going to jump up to a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Investigations, the insight portion of that journal, published in June of 2020. So this is volume five, and the E number on that is 138999. So it's freely available, and you can read it now online. Okay, what is this paper about and how am I getting into this? This paper relates to the current um, corona disease. The clinical manifestation of the disease associated with infection by what's known as a severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus, or SARS-CoV-2, or COVID-19, has multiple names, can present as a severe cold symptom and finally, a viral pneumonia that rarely progresses, rarely progresses to an acute respiratory distress syndrome known as ARDS, and then multiple organ failure. And that can happen in some humans. Elevated serum neutrophil are a proposed early marker for early indicators of the SARS-CoV-2 infection, typically associating with severe respiratory distress in which there is a pathophysiological manifestation of neutrophil extracellular traps or nets, okay? Now, nets have been found in various thromboinflammatory states, including sepsis, strict thrombosis, and regular respiratory failure. Nets are extracellular webs of DNA histones, and microbiocidal proteins. Also included are oxidant enzymes, like myeloperoxidase, which we'll get to in a moment, that are released by neutrophils to diminish the infection. This is an innate immune response, remember? So unless regulation is lost, when regulation is lost, nets, okay, these particular neutrophil extracellular traps can initiate and propagate inflammation and indeed lead to thrombosis. So inhibition of neutrophils and nets is protective in various models of an influenza-associated ARDS, okay? Remember, that's the acute respiratory distress syndrome that's associated with the presentation of coronavirus disease. <clears throat> and there is emerging evidence that implicates inflammatory cytokines, like interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and in those cytokines, those pro-inflammatory cytokines, and the ARDS presentation with the COVID-19 presentation. Other pandemic viruses, including the influenza H1N1, the original SARS-CoV, and the, the MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, are also associated with neutrophilic infiltration at sites of infection, 
and then the development subsequently of ARDS. So the acute exudative phase of ARDS is characterized by an exuberant immune response producing pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, an increased neutrophil infiltration and, the, and its accumulation into the alveoli and a disruption of the alveolar epithelial capillary barrier. Concomitant induction of acid sphingomyelinase and the proapatotic ceramide produced will yield a membrane graft structure that traffics and supports this overall pathobiochemical sequelae. <clears throat> so, particular paper that we're talking about here involved 30 patients. COVID-19 samples showed higher levels of cell-free DNA, myeloperoxidase DNA complexes, and citronellated histones, those are called CITH3s, with the MPO DNA and CITH3 being specifically associated to the nets. Right. All right. So now we've got the neutrophil and its products being associated with COVID-19 from human samples. Now for a subset of the patients, about 22 of them, there was a longitudinal serum sample made available. Three of those patients showed worsening oxygenation during the period of collection and hospitalization from room air to nasal cannula oxygen from nasal cannula oxygen to high flow oxygen and then oxygenation during the period of collection. Okay, so that overall occurrence ultimately to mechanical ventilation. For all three markers that I just mentioned to you of these nets, they tended to go up as oxygenation requirement worsens. The three markers uh, that I just mentioned to you are indicative of net remnants and they're elevating the serum of patients with COVID-19 as compared with the control. Remember that cell-free DNA, MPO DNA, that's myeloperoxidase associated with DNA, and these citrinolated histones, CITH3. Okay? Just to remind you what these three are. <clears throat> now, myeloperoxidase can damage host tissue and contribute to human disease, including a destruction of endothelium in the vasculature. Neutrophil endothelial interactions are essential to maintain, of course, macro and microvascular health, where leukocyte MPO's oxidation system poses deleterious effects is at this blood endothelial interface, as well as the potential subendothelial space because of leukocyte infiltration. In fact, leukocyte interaction with the endothelium first involves an encounter with the endothelial glycocalyx that has to be surmounted. So MPO targets extracellular matrix proteins and reduces nit nitric oxide availability, mediates neutrophil recruitment and activation. Hence, MPO itself, that enzyme, plays a role in renal disease, sickle cell disease, and in ischemia reperfusion injury, atherosclerosis, sepsis, and as it looks, respiratory failure associated with viral disease. So what myeloperoxidase does is takes hydrogen peroxide generated from first molecular oxygen, making superoxide, then superoxide dismutase, making hydrogen peroxide, 
Hydrogen peroxide contains two fates. It can either be converted via an iron-mediated catalysis to a hydroxy radical, proton added, and then removal of that very toxic hydroxy radical to synthesize water, or the hydrogen peroxide can go through the myeloperoxidase activity, making hypochlorous acids. It's a halide-mediated event. This is happening in neutrophils. Remember, you're making this hypochlorous acid to kill what? Invading pathogens. The hypochlorous acid gets removed with more hydrogen peroxide forming water and then singlet oxygen and free chloride ion. That's the way the dissolution finally occurs. So total neutrophil count and MPO DNA and especially cell-free DNA from these nets, from these neutrophils, uh, extracellular traps is what a net is, gave strong positive correlation with COVID-19 suggesting nets were linked to the presentation of the disease. There's a possible relationship, this is really important, between level of serum nets and the severity of COVID-19. These are profoundly presented in the ventilated patients. Okay, So that's what this paper was able to come up with. Now recall that alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is also known as alpha-1 protease inhibitor or SERPIN-A1, to keep you aware of these different track to be able to uh, this through the literature, is an acute-based protein. Indeed, it's the most abundant serpent in human plasma. Now, combine our introduction to neutrophils and COPD, ARDS, and regular RDS, respiratory stress system, and associate that with coronavirus severity. Remember what I talked about in the past lectures, and now combine it with what I'm saying today. The alpha-1 antitrypsin exhibits a potent inhibitory capacity against neutrophil serine proteases, particularly the neutrophil elastase, also known as NE. And as mentioned three lectures ago, the inherited AATA deficiency, that is the antitrypsin uh, inhibitor, is linked to early onset pulmonary emphysema and all the sequelae associated with that. Remember that disease was called AATD. So the molecular polymorphism of alpha antitrypsin and its putative effects on neutrophils is as following. Molecular forms of the AAT can be native, latent, polymeric, remember when it made the polymeric form and caused cancer, cleave because it, because it corrupted the unfolded protein response. That was in a previous lecture. Polymeric did that. The cleaved AATs, oxidized AATs, nitrosylated AATs, again, this is the antitrypsin, right? And variably glycated, so there are multiple forms. Now, those can all interact with potential binding uh, partners, such as proteases, defensins, cytokines, chemokines, leukotrienes we talked about, free heme complement, free fatty acids, lipoproteins, heat shock proteins, surfactant protein A, and indeed even immunoglobulins, as I've mentioned to you. Ultimately, you get neither stimulation or inhibition of the neutrophil, depending on the interaction of the molecular forms, which there are multiple species, and the binding partners, which are multiple species. And so whether or not you get stimulation or inhibition of the neutrophil is going to be the topic of the next lecture. So I'm going to leave you with that. And I want you to start thinking about what I'm saying, the valency of the neutrophils and the neutrophil uh, nets that are generated and the antitrypsin 
is going to give you either a disease state or a state which will remove the pathobiochemistry of that disease state. And that's what we're going to get to next time. We're going to get to more of the nitty-gritty molecularity of the detail. This fundamental principle is what I'm trying to get at. Drugs, pharmacotherapy that's just associated with either enhancing or removing one particular significant player in a disease state is usually not going to work because whatever that individual molecule is, such as an alpha-1 antitrypsin, can change or flip its response based on its partnering with other molecules, which can be in the disease state setting. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying from Authentic Biochemistry, bye for now.